All right, it's 3.30, so we've got a couple things to do today. Let me do, let me talk about some dates. So this is our, we are wrapping up Genesis today. Um, we're going to cover some, we'll cover the last couple chapters at a high level. I'll read a couple things and then um, wrap up the big themes that we've been talking about all semester. So there is an Advent study. There's a church-wide Advent study. I'm going to teach it. It's on, it's on Tuesday nights at 6.30 in that normal 6.30 spot, right? And that, that's when Tuesday night men's worship. Um, and it, Advent studies are four weeks long. Um, it's peace, love, joy, and hope. I'm going to skip peace because we have the blue Christmas service at the end of that uh, time. So it's, it's four, four Tuesdays in a row, but the last one is actually a worship ser- service in the sanctuary. If you've never been to a blue Christmas service, it's really nice. Um, Care Ministries puts this on. It's The 21st is the longest night of the year, and it's especially for folks who are grieving at the holidays, especially for, for people who have lost folks that year. That first holiday can be tough. I mean, all holidays are tough, but the first one's especially so. So that'll be in the sanctuary. Uh, So we'll do whatever the other three are, love, joy, hope. Um, And we'll, the location's TBD. We have to wait to see how many people we're going to expect. It's it's a video um, series. I'm not going to use the video, though. I'm just going to teach on it, and we'll probably sing some Christmas carols and tell some Christmas stories, and so it'll be fun. Um, Choir members. Who who here sings in the choir? Will you raise your hands? We'll give them a round of applause. Holy cow. tell you what from Sunday night I mean listen there are just not that many churches that could do what we've done in the past week (laughs) like I mean the the the, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to our music ministries and um, so Sunday night was tremendous if you've never seen the movie Amadeus I highly recommend it it's a top five movie for me and it's I mean a a key storyline is the story of the writing of most of his requiem so that's of course what the choir did on um Sunday night, and Jason very was very. He really wanted me to make sure that <laughs> the people knew that all that hellfire and brimstone is not normally what we do around here. <laughs> so, like fiery embers and torture me in the flames and all that. But if you've seen Amadeus, you know that that music is particularly evocative of where Mozart was emotionally and spiritually at the end of his life. Um, for sure, but but the intensity of that music uh, is just—I mean, the number of notes, <laughs> like the like the—you can just hear his anxiety in that music. It's so frantic is the right word. Yeah, yeah, that's a great word for it. And then this morning um, was just great. It was just great, and I'm really glad we had we did have two people show up at 8:45, <laughs> wondering when worship was. I didn't recognize them, so they must have just looked at the sign. <laughs> um, so then, uh, you know, it, the house was full. I mean, I, if you guys looked around, you know, there was not a seat to be had. There really was lots of love online. Um, you know, he is a master. He is just a master preacher. I was really looking forward to hearing him preach again. He was, I mean, between you, me, and the lamppost, it was adorable. He was pretty, he was pretty nervous this morning. Because, you know, you get out, you, had, you hadn't done it in two years. I mean, you get in a rhythm as a preacher, and you just, you kind of, you know, you get your own voice, and you just, you're used to doing it every Sunday, but taking all that time off, and then getting up and having to deliver that much anticipated sermon, um, and being an introvert, and your best, one of your best friends, the bishop, is here, and a beloved former associate is here, and people you haven't seen in, since the pandemic began, knowing you got to stand in a receiving line, which is not necessarily his jam, for, I mean, it was a full hour he was out there, um, 
Uh, wow. Yeah. You, you wouldn't know it once it gets up. <laughs> um, and what's funny is, uh, one of, so our oldest, Max, is 15. His, one of his best friends in Sherman is John Dannel, the grandson of John Dannel, who he talked about from the funeral home, that funeral home story. Small world. And John is named, of course, after his grandfather. Um, but it was just, it was terrific. And uh, he, he, we surprised him with the orchestra. He didn't know we were going to have an orchestra. Um, I, um, if, he, if he knew about uh, Underwood Hall, he, he didn't know about it until Friday when it, the painting was done. And I'm pretty sure we surprised him with that. And so we can't call it, <laughs> one of the committee members made the funny, the fun, yeah, 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 that was rolling. But we couldn't name it Don Underwood Hall because then that would be the acronym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our Advent study's in the duh. <laughs> so it was great. It was great. Well, we do our, we're wrapping up Genesis today, and we're going to recap some of these big themes, but we do have uh, some couple verses to read first. So we're at the very end of the Joseph cycle. Chapter 45 is where we left off. 45.5. We spent a fair amount of time talking about this whole question of providence, so I don't know that we're going to belabor that necessarily, but I do want to um, pick up with, let's see, we read 45.5, that was where we left off last week, uh, God sent me before you to preserve life. So we're going to start in chapter 46 and go uh, read the first, uh, let's see, I'll jump around a little bit, but we're going to read the first verse, uh, seven verses of this. So when Israel set out on his journey, Jacob set out on his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I, will, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's own hand shall close your eyes. Would that we could all die that peacefully. Then Jacob set off from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and the goods that they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring, he brought with him to Egypt. Now here's the thing. We read that knowing full well what's coming. <laughs> right? We, it does not end well in Egypt for the Israelites. I mean, ultimately it ends well, but there's like four centuries where it's not, not good. Um, so that, as a, even when this was put on papyrus, uh, during the, probably during the reign of Solomon sometime, um, Israel knew the history. So this, this seminal event of the Exodus was already in their rearview mirror, and as Jacob and his sons are going down to is Egypt to prosper, they all full well know how that turns out. So then let's jump down to 28. Verse 28 of that 46 chapter. Israel sent Judah ahead to Joseph to lead the way before him into Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. This is the, re the reunion, obviously. Israel said to Joseph, I can die now, having seen for myself that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. 
When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen, uh, because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. We're going to go through 12, 47, 12. So Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. From among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to him, Pharaoh, or they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our ancestors were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to reside as aliens in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, um, because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Bless you. Now we ask you, let your servants settle in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father uh, and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know that they, that they are, are capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. The only thing connecting them is Joseph. And Israel <laughs> blesses Pharaoh, we're told. Which is, and we are reading this, even if we're reading this or having it read to us in the time of Solomon, we know what's coming. We know that there's a Pharaoh who forgot Jacob. So this is a pretty, it's a kind of a pregnant moment. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my earthly sojourn are 130. Few and hard have been the years of my life. They do not compare with the years of the life of my ancestors during their long sojourn. Jacob knows this is a temporary stop for God's people, right? Even, I mean, they need it <laughs> because of the famine, but this is a temporary accommodation. Now, it ends up being four centuries, 430 years or whatever the number ends up being, but it's temporary. So you have this uh, chosen son um, blessed by God with the promise that was, uh, that was initially given to his grandfather. And you've got Pharaoh, with all the trappings of power and wealth that Joseph's bailed him out, so he's, you know, he's going to make it through the famine just fine. He knows that. So you have power and lack of power, but really, I mean, that's earthly power <laughs> because what really matters, we know, as God's people, uh, is this right here, the promise and the blessing. So Jacob, Israel, is standing before Pharaoh not as a refugee, I mean, kind of as a refugee, but as much more than a refugee. It's really a significant moment. Pharaoh's not used to people being bold around him, right? Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh, says it again, and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and granted them a holding in the land of Egypt and the best part of the land in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had instructed. And Joseph provided his father, his, father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So then the famine happens just like, uh, just like, Jacob had interpreted, I mean, just like Joseph had interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And then there's this deathbed scene that's strangely reminiscent of the one Jacob had with his father. So uh, the last days, so Jacob's, he's dying. After this, Joseph was told, your father's ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, he summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase in numbers. So it's recalling the promise and the blessing. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give, you, uh, will give this land to your offspring after you for a perpetual holding. 
Therefore, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are now mine, and Manasseh shall be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. As for the offspring born to you after them, they shall be yours. They shall be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. For when I came from Paddan, Rachel, alas, died in the land of Canaan on the way, while they were, there was still some distance to go to uh, Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. All right, there we go. And I buried her there on the way to Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? You remember that scene, right? Isaac said, who are you, my son? I mean, there's so many echoes here of um, stuff that came before. Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim. We've heard this before. Dim with age, and he could not see well. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I did not expect to see your face, and here God has let me see your children also. Then Joseph removed them from his father's knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them near him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. It's like Jacob can't help himself, right? <laughs> he's just being honoring. He was honored before he was born. He's honored here on his deathbed. And then he, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, bless the boys. And in them let my name be perpetuated in the name of my ancestors Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude on the earth. It's really a pretty blessing. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. I mean, it's like, there's, so much, there's so much you can do here with like family systems stuff, like pastoral care, like how, how um, dysfunction is repeated generation after generation unless you make a conscious choice to do something different. Like there's a whole, there's a whole um, branch of psychotherapy about that. <laughs> God knows this family could have used it along the way. Um, but he's, he is reenacting what, what happened with his own father. And, you know, does he identify with the younger son? Probably. Joseph, being one of the youngest, is trying to get it right, which is interesting because you'd think he'd, I don't know, there's a lot going on. So uh, I read, I reread what Brueggemann has to say about that. But the text says, crossing his hand. What, crossing his hands. Why had Jacob done that? Because he was old and could not see better? <laughs> because he was un, an unredeemable trickster who remembered his own blessing and only continued the scandal? Or is the narrative this way because of an ex post facto awareness of the domination of the other tribe in the history of all the tribes? Like, in other words, is this author looking back on the history of these two tribes and saying, well, the younger one must have been blessed because the younger tribe ends up getting the better of the older tribe? All these reasons have some cogency to the detached observer who seeks an explanation, but the expositor, us, is not permitted to explain things. The narrative itself refuses to explain. Right? I mean, the story just tells us it's what happened. It doesn't try to put any kind of value judgment on why or give us an explanation as to why. The narrative itself refuses to explain. It only tells it and leaves it there. In the bounds of the story itself, there is no reasonable explanation to give. As with many things in Scripture, 
in the bounds of the story itself, there's no reasonable explanation to give. The story refuses to speculate. As it stands, the act is inexplicable, as has been every major turn in the life of this family. <laughs> so we just receive it. I mean, this is, we can make of it what we will, because the, the text doesn't give us an explanation. Um, verse 20, so he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel, will invoke blessing, by you, Israel, will invoke blessing, saying, God, make you like Ephraim and like Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God be with you, God will be with you, and will bring you again to the land of your ancestors. I now give to you one portion more than to your brothers, the portion that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. We're actually going to skip 49. There's a, it says, yeah, so my, my translation, uh, the heading for this section says, or my study Bible says, Jacob's last words to his sons. It's not really a blessing per se. It's kind of an explanation, and some of them come out looking better than others, but it doesn't really advance the, the narrative all that. So we'll go to uh, chapter 50, verse 15. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? Like, what if he just was, what, what if he was letting us off the, off the hook while dad was alive, and now that dad's gone, uh-oh. So they approached Joseph, saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming. I don't know if he actually did that. But. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were also born on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, When God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died. Being 110 years old, he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Some stuff happens in the meantime. So this book is, uh, it's, uh, gosh, I mean, I, I guess we've spent a fair amount of time talking about how complicated it is and how um, varied it is. And how if you read closely and if you've got a good commentary or study Bible, you can hear, you can hear voices uh, centuries apart <laughs> that are telling portions of this story. And it starts out, I mean, Genesis 1 is the more recent narrative, but in terms of characters, we get the, the Adam cycle, and then we hear about Noah, and then we get into the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And, and we know that these aren't all firstborn, right? And so they're the, what humanity would expect, this law of um, primogeniture, how do you pronounce that? Like this notion that the firstborn is the most important um, gets turned upside down in the middle. And there are these 
kind of epic storylines that, that begin in the prehistory and get repeated throughout the book. Essentially, this book begins with this, this very simple uh, idea, this is Brueggemann, that creator creates creation, and we know that God's purpose, or we infer that God's purpose for uh, creation is shalom and unity, and that the last thing we're good at creating is shalom and unity, and that that started with the first two human beings and just gets carried over in each successive generation in different ways, but um, it's a, it's a uh, theme that continues, this idea of brokenness and this, this notion that we're just not good at peace and one. That's, that, that goes against our, I don't want to say human nature because we're created in the image and likeness of God, but maybe we can say our inclination is for selfishness. Like that's how we naturally show up in the world. It shows up differently for each of us, but that's kind of our, our predicament, our human predicament. And so we get this, this uh, pattern, and it shows up different ways. Sometimes it's sin, and that's a, intended to be a capital S, things that we do wrong, so much as this power that's within us that, that nudges us to choose what God doesn't want for us. Evil, gosh, there's a whole study we could do on evil, what that looks like, how it came into the world, how it perpetuates, but certainly humanity participates in it, even if we're not the ultimate origin of it. Conflict is something we're way better at than shalom and unity. Shows up first with Adam and Eve, right? And then their two kids can't get along. And then the whole world goes to hell. And Don said it in sermon, so I can say it in the Bible study. <laughs> uh, and, that, and so God has this giant do-over with Noah. And then but it still doesn't work, right? I mean, it's just the pattern is all over the place and will be for the rest of the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it shows up kind of in a different way. But ultimately, what God does again and again and again is uh, reach out to us and invite us into a relationship. Now, for Christians, we believe that's through Jesus, clearly. But grace shows up all over the Old Testament. <laughs> it's not like Old Testament is law, New Testament is grace. That's sometimes the very flat way we understand the two books. That's not really the way. I mean, our Jewish friends would take serious issue with that. There's plenty of grace in the Old Testament. And it starts really with the fact that he doesn't kill Adam and Eve like he says he's going to, right? In that day you shall die. Okay, fine. I love you too much to do that. So instead he makes clothes for them and ultimately even protects them and their family. And then God's like, oh, I got this. I, I just got to start over. But I, I won't start completely over. Noah, there's some grace for you. There's a covenant with you. And then out of the blue, he calls Abraham into a relationship for no good reason, promises to bless him with land and an heir. I mean, Abraham didn't do anything to deserve that. That's the definition of grace. Uh, he didn't do anything to earn it. The offer was way before his faithfulness. God moves first always. And then with Isaac, I mean, he's kind of a muted character as we've seen. Clearly has his own issues, but the promise endures. Jacob is a rascal from start to finish, from before his birth to his deathbed. And yet, he's still the patriarch. And not just the patriarch, the one where, that God's people get, to, get named after, Joseph. It is a, an epic, epic tale. And the thing is, the ultimate name of the whole thing feels like we're done with the story, right? I mean, it's, we've covered centuries, and yet, it's still just the beginning of the story. 
I was really, when we started with Genesis and Old Testament, I was like, oh, God, okay, fine. Adam and Eve, flood, I get it. Abraham. Yeah, there's like layers and layers and layers of storytelling. And all of it, in my mind, is revelatory for us, even though we're way beyond this story. I mean, we're, we're going to talk next, next semester about Luke. That was the other date I meant to put up here, by the way. January 9th, when we'll resume, and we'll do Luke in the, in the winter, spring. And that's going to feel like our wheelhouse. I mean, Luke is like Sunday school Jesus. Luke is the Jesus we all know and love. He's not grumpy Mark Jesus. He's like prodigal son Jesus and Zacchaeus Jesus and the good Samaritan Jesus. I mean, Luke is just gold. There'll be some surprises along the way, but like that all feels familiar. And what's interesting is, you know, as, as preachers, um, it's so hard not to just only ever preach on Jesus. It really is because the, our, our, um, like the liturgical cycle, so leading up to Christmas, we're, I mean, what else do you have to talk about? I guess you could talk about prophets, but, you know, we're getting ready for Christmas. We're going to talk about baby Jesus. And then after Easter, you talk about the early church, and that's all the Christian movement. And so we, it's hard sometimes to go deep, very deep anyway, on these Old Testament stories. And yet, these were Jesus' stories. <laughs> these are the stories he grew up on that formed who he was and how he understood the world, at least the human side of him. And, and when, we, when we dig in, like, it really does sound familiar. <laughs> Steamy? Ooh, yeah. And we didn't even get into much of the idioms and all that. Ooh, man, that'll make you blush. We're in mixed company, so I can't even get into some of those. That's the thing about these stories, though. They're very, um, like, at least parts of them, depending on who's, which source is writing them. Like, the priestly stuff doesn't get too steamy. But the stuff around the campfire? Woo! The sto- those stories ended up being on, on paper uh, or put down on papyrus centuries later. Tell the full range of the human experience. And you can't, and you can't tell the full range of the human experience without getting into some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, so this is the thing about, this really is the way my brain works associatively. <laughs> my wife is an engineer and she thinks very linearly and that's a linear is a struggle for me sometimes yeah so it's not just Calvin Calvin didn't just dream up that dream up that whole question of providence so we have the question of free will not the question of the subject of free will like what is it how does it function how complete is it you have the issue of and so what's the relationship between a God who is all these things and yet has endowed God's pinnacle of creation with free will? How convinced are we of these things, these ideas? And as you've seen, 50 chapters of Genesis don't lay it out in a systematic way, right? So if you're a Wesleyan, an Arminian, and your total commitment is to free will, you can find plenty of stories about that. If you're Calvinist and you kind of tend more towards a a heavy-handed view of God, you could certainly make the case for that. How does God work when we don't see God at work? Providence. Lord have mercy. Judgment. I mean, what is the story of the flood if not a story of judgment? But then there's also, as I've mentioned, a fair amount of grace starting with Adam and Eve, starting with the first two people, whether you understand them literally or metaphorically. You can, you can read it either way. But 
God's unconditional love, so this is unearned and unearnable love. And grace implies a level of forgiveness, for sure, for the things we've done. But it also, for Wesleyans, means a certain amount of empowerment by the power of the Holy Spirit to choose the good. Like all of these, all of these very complicated theological ideas begin to be revealed at the beginning. <laughs> Such an aptly named book. Do you think that there's a morally unambiguous character in Genesis? Like just a, like us. And my God, that's good news, right? I mean, these heroes of the faith are just like you and I. Faithful, trying to do the right thing, sometimes broken, sometimes selfish and unwittingly so, sometimes selfish and wittingly so. <laughs> so, okay. Yes, 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 yes. You get the, no, da, da, da. God said to Noah, I'm going to build an arky, arky. And then, but why? <laughs> it's going to be a floody, floody. And what about everybody else? Like, why is it just Noah? Yeah, I love that. Gosh, that's great. And we, I'm pro I probably have not emphasized that enough um, this semester. So above the entrance to um, Sacred Heart Cathedral on the University of Notre Dame campus, there's an inscription. And I always thought it was missing something. But it was God, country, Notre Dame. Like that's, and it, but from, and all of your Navy ROTC stuff, Veterans Day stuff is on my mind right now for obvious reasons. Uh, young Navy officers, young Ar Army Air Force officers, you'd walk in and it, like as a, as a young military, like it was such an important part of the mission of the University of Notre Dame that even if you were going to prepare for war, that you had your priorities straight. So we had to take a class called War Law and Ethics because we had to be able to discern, it was important to the university that we be able to discern an unlawful order, like, and that our, ultimately our allegiance is to God first, always to God, second to country, then to Notre Dame. On football weekends, though, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I never pull for the academies over Notre Dame, I can tell you that. Um, I, but I always felt like we were missing one here. And I don't know, I'd probably put it second. It is the story of family. And it's not just the story of a human family, right? We are all members of the family of God. Uh, now, in Christian theology, that means that's because of our adoption as children of God in Christ. That's, what, that's the theology Paul goes with. You probably know this. When you baptize a baby, you don't baptize them with their last name. Y'all know that? You, so when I say, by what name will we baptize this child? So my oldest is James Maxwell. And, and, I, and uh, I didn't baptize him, I baptized Sam, Samuel Dean. I baptized him Samuel Dean, not Samuel Dean Dowd, because he is Samuel Dean. Like, that's how seriously we take that theology. You are forever now in the household of God. But that familial theme is right there in the beginning. Adam and Eve are the first family, and they have a complicated one right out of the gate, <laughs> right? That sibling, they needed to read siblings without rivalry. <laughs> Because Cain and Abel didn't show up very, very great in the real world. But it, it ends up being God's blessing is to the world through a family, right? I mean, that's part of the promise. It was an heir. And that that family then would bless the world. And so in Christian theology, we expand that. And everyone who puts their faith in Christ is part of the, the same family. I get a little distracted, honestly, when uh, I do think sometimes families overused. Um, like... 
I love my kids' sports teams. Those are not families. <laughs> so every once in a while, you, you know, you'll hear somebody say, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, Cubs family or Anderson family. Like, I mean, I appreciate the sentiment <laughs> that we're, you know, all pulling in the same direction. But families for me are the one I'm born into and the one I'm baptized into. And I actually do think that church family is the right phrase. Like, that is a, that is a theological statement when we say Christ united family. We're saying this particular, this particular household of God. I think that's good, really good theology, which is why I like to save that for, you know, my own, my, my bios and the church family. Anything in Genesis in light of Easter and Christmas? Like, do you see any connections between the, the tale, the epic story of Genesis and what we, and how we connect to that specifically through Christ? Also not a loaded question. I'm not not a quiz or anything. I'm not looking for a specific answer. Waiting for the air. Okay. And you and you, we do get these echoes of like of Bethlehem, like the foreshadowing of the importance of Bethlehem. Yeah, that's a great reference. Yes. And here's the crazy thing about that story. We don't read it all that much during Advent. I mean, it's it's after his birth. You know, he's the running from Herod is the way that story goes. It's a really important part of the story. Uh, that just as Israel and his family were refugees in Egypt, so the Holy Family was for a while. And that's an, that's an intentional connection to that, that story, for sure. And then there's a, a new exodus when they come back. Yeah, that's a good reference. It's Luke, so there's two, there's two um, lineages. Do you know the genealogies of Jesus? You know, there's two of them. There's one in Matthew, one in Luke. The one in Matthew, which is the more Jewish of the Gospels, do you know how far back that genealogy goes? In Matthew to Abraham Luke goes back to yeah because because Matthew is speaking to a more Jewish Christian audience Luke is speaking to a more Gentile Christian audience so Abraham's not really that big a deal for a Gentile right if you're Jewish everything not quite everything but close but for Adam and speaking to a Gentile audience is the beginning of creation so yeah it, it, the very the very uh, story of Jesus birth takes us all the way back to Genesis and then there's the, uh, you know, the whole sacrifice of Isaac thing has echoes with Jesus. I mean, him carrying his own wood to the sacrifice. And so I, I, I love Genesis, and I think that there is some really important material here. And um, we don't do it justice when we, when we narrow our exploration of Genesis to the first three chapters, right? The, the first chapter of Genesis is one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture and theology ever written, in my opinion, the priestly account, the six days. And the Adam and Eve story is deeply important for the way we understand our relationship with God. But the rest of it is so good. And uh, the complexity of Abraham, but his deep faith, and the deeply flawed nature of the guy that we're all named after in some respects, Israel, Jacob. Um, the evolution of Joseph from simple, wide-eyed boy who gets thrown into slavery to the guy who's pulling all the strings at the end. That's, I mean, there's so much insight about, about human nature in this book and so much really good theology about how we understand um, how we understand ourselves and our relationship with God. So there's like this phrase, theological anthropology, which means how, like the the, our theology of how humans 
relate to God. It all starts here. And the, and the rest of the Old Testament, so next fall we'll do Exodus, which is a brilliant, brilliant book that really, well, it's when, it's when the people Israel become the people Israel, right? Right now we're just kind of a bunch of clan, uh, tribes that are related by blood. But the Israelites become God's people really in Exodus. Um, and, and Moses, as important as Abraham is, Moses is the, the primary character in the Old Testament. Y'all probably know that. Um, and, and that gets into law and the relationship between rules and grace and, and, and all that. But Genesis is like this extended um, reflection on what it is to be human and what it is to be human in relationship to God. That foundation is here and uh, what we're going to talk about next semester in Luke is how, how Jesus took that understanding and, of course, in Christ, what we believe is that they become one thing. The divine and the human are one in Christ. And that changes the way we live faithfully. But it's built on the foundation that starts in Genesis. And I, it's been uh, really a delight for me to... So, I hope you'll consider joining the Advent study on Tuesdays at 6.30. It is after dark, unfortunately, because of the way the time goes, but um, it'll be worth your while if you want to join us. And if not, then January 9th, we will uh, pick back up with Luke. Um, I'm going to end a couple minutes early today because I am in the Christmas, the children's pageant. I play the role of pastor. <laughs> and and there's, a, there's a male lead and a female lead, and the male lead is my youngest child, which I'm pretty... And he's got a solo. I'm really proud of him. Because he's, of the two of them, he's the shy one. Um, so I am supposed to have some lines memorized, which I'm not. I, I'm just a pastor. How, how hard could it be? I've, I've, done this. I've played this role before. So I'm looking forward to that. But I appreciate y'all very much. It's really been a, good, a great fall. I'm going to close this with prayer, and then I'll hang out for a couple minutes. Okay? Pray. Gracious God, on a, a day we celebrated um, the ministry of Don, but also the ministry of all of those who have been part of it for the past 37 years. We give you thanks for this particular family of faith. We give you thanks for the calling that you've placed on the lives of all of us here. We give you thanks for the ways in which you call us into a relationship, not just with you, but with each other. I'm grateful for all those who devoted some time to the study over the past weeks. I pray that the holidays would richly bless each one of us and that in January, January we might come back together and study more specifically about Jesus. Guide and guard us all as we leave this place. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Appreciate it.